Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatic. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, powered by First National and the Real Estate Forum's Speaker Video Series. I am Adam Pawatic, and with me, as always, is Aaron Cameron. We are lenders with First National by day, but by night, we are, of course, uh, podcasters. We want to thank our sponsor, Yardy, on this episode. Don't forget, stay tuned. Of course, Aaron and I will do our after show to share our thoughts on the episode. Joining us today, we've got Dean Holmes, Senior Vice President, Residential Operations at Quadreal. We are, of course, live at the Canadian Apartment Investment Conference. Woof, that was hard. That was, uh, it only that took was you four takes to get through yeah, that. Yeah, people will never know because of editing, but uh, you, know, you do have a couple <laughs> of rough starts. Yeah, we're setting the stage though. This is uh, an interesting time for Aaron and I because we are, of course, doing you know, video sessions today. We're back at conferences in person, which is you know, fantastic. Since COVID sent us all home, we've only had the chance to do, I think, one of these back in person uh, since. I'll take that as a sign of, of uh, normalcy. Normalcy, yeah, normalcy and happiness. Anyways, sorry, our guest, Dean, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here in person at the conference. You can feel the energy. This is probably my first conference since the pandemic. So glad to be back in person. It's funny, you know, you can almost sense the post-pandemic reality by the number of times you think about COVID when you're surrounded by a group of people. And I'll say, I haven't thought about it once until I just mentioned that. So back in the last forum we did, I think it was back of my mind. There are people wearing masks all over the place. And now you feel like, hey, maybe maybe we are skating through this thing. I just jinxed it. Of course, there's going to be some announcement of some giant new variant wave <laughs> no, coming. Don't anyway, even say that. Sorry. No, no more <laughs> okay. No. That's not what we're here for. Let's forget yeah. that. Dean, working at Quadril now, but we always like to start these conversations off with just the background. Who are you? How did you get into real estate? How did you end up working for Quadrille and apartments? Yeah, it's an interesting story and it's been kind of a meandering path for me. To put it in context, very few people find themselves growing up and when people say, what do you want to do when you grow up? And they say, I want to be in the apartment industry. Very few people do that. And that was really the case with me as well. And I grew up in the US, mostly in the Eastern United States, Washington, DC area. And when I graduated from high school, I joined the U.S. Air Force and uh, was stationed in Alaska. And I spent four years in the U.S. Air Force in Alaska and stayed for an additional year. And um, as I was preparing to end my time in the Air Force, trying to figure out what I was going to do, and I wasn't really sure. And um, I was keeping track of job opportunities in the Washington, D.C. area. And back in those days, you'd look in the newspaper and the classified ads and there was an ad in there for a property management trainee. And so I sent in a resume and this was a company that was well-established in the DC area. And we're looking to bring in people into a management training program where they would start you at the community level and then work you through various roles in the organization. And so I was accepted into that program and the rest is sort of history. I've stayed in, in the industry. It's probably been 25 years now after I left the the management training program. I progressively went to work for firms that were managing larger, more national portfolios. And uh, that led me to where I am now in Quadril. So I got to ask, uh, you know, my exposure to military is just from movies, but what skill sets did you learn there that translated into your next career? It's a great question. And for me, the military was my early college experience. After I started my career, I wound up going to college, got a bachelor's degree and a master's degree. But my stint in the military, keeping in mind that when I arrived in Alaska for my first duty assignment, I was 17 years old. So that was my early college experience. And so 
diversity, I've got exposure to diversity very early. People from all walks of life are in the military and we work and live in very close quarters. And uh, so I learned a lot about that. I learned a lot of discipline. Prior to joining the military, I wasn't sure what I was going to do. I had played drums and I actually had a had an idea that maybe I wanted to be a drummer for a living. And then uh, when my latest band imploded, I joined the Air Force. And uh, so, yeah, it just gave me discipline that I'm not sure where I would have gotten otherwise and just early exposure to working and living with people from all different walks of life. What was the last time you uh, picked up the sticks? Uh, I still have a very large drum kit up north of my cottage. And so once a month or so, I'll, I'll make some noise. I'm sure the neighbors love that. <laughs> yeah. Teasing. Yeah, it goes over well. So how did you end up in Canada at Quadrille working for basically what is you know, Canadian pension fund? Yeah, well, I should say that I, although I grew up and lived most of my life in the U.S., I am Canadian. I've been okay. Canadian since birth. My father was also in the U.S. Air Force Station in England. And when I was born there, they gave him the option to make me a British citizen or a Canadian citizen. And he made me a Canadian citizen. Good decision. Yeah. And then subsequently, he got reassigned to the U.S. So he got green cards for his children that had been born at the time. So I lived all of my life in the U.S. with a green card, but maintained my Canadian citizenship. And then in November of 18, I got a phone call from a search firm about an opportunity with Quadrille. And the gist of the opportunity was an opportunity to come work for a firm that was a startup in many respects. And when I reflect- Multi-billion dollar startup. Uh, yes, <laughs> a well-funded, uh, very well-led startup. And when I reflected on my career and, and the opportunity quadrille, the things that I've enjoyed the most in my career are fixing things, building things, repositioning things. And the opportunity to quadrille really was the opportunity to build something almost from scratch. And so I got a call and um, I came up actually to interview with Quadrille right around this time. Actually, I'm sorry, no, right around November of 2018 and um, loved the people that I met and loved the opportunity. And there was so much clarity in what they wanted to do and so much consistency when you talk to people at the company about what's the vision for Quadril, it's just amazing how consistent it was. And uh, it's been a terrific uh, opportunity for me. I love the company. So Dean works more on the operations side. And we're going to talk in specifically about you know, apartments nationwide from an operational design perspective. We have had Anthony Lanny, who is your boss. And he talked really about sort of the apartment, I guess, theory for Quadril, more at a higher level. Uh, and of course, we've had Remco Dahl on where he talked about you know, a really interesting conversation about, you know, had the name of Quadrille and the formation of the industry or of the organization. So if you are interested, we'll, you'll let you go back and try to find those episodes. But for Dean, let's kind of lead into kind of your expertise. Maybe just talk about what it is you're responsible for at Quadrille. Yeah, so my core expertise is in residential operations, what I've done for my entire career. And as mentioned, I started actually at the community level. So I understand how things work um, at that level and then sort of work my way up. And uh, so I'm responsible at Quadrille for all things associated with the operation of the real estate portfolio, whether it's the P&L, marketing, branding, design of new development, supervision, leadership of our community level teams, everything that goes into the day-to-day operation of a multifamily community. And then how does that connect uh, to, the, to the investment side? As we talked a little bit about uh, you know, NOI growth, I mean, obviously you've got uh, to care for the assets, but there's ultimately new investors behind this. So how much of your decisions revolve around the investment return of the portfolio? Really, almost everything we yeah. do revolves around that. I mean, we are, Quadrille is formed by BCI, Pension Fund, and 
of British Columbia. And at the end of the day, our core mission is to produce returns for the pensioners of BCI. And so everything we do as an investment lends to it. And uh, I've got a pretty good asset management background as well. We're constantly paying attention to whether it's revenue decisions, expense decisions, and so forth, and the impact that has on the valuation of the real estate. So let's focus on that because uh, this, this morning at the conference, you know, there's been a fair bit of discussion about some of the headwinds that we, you know, that we as industry are facing. But let's jump into some of the stuff to be specific to operations. You know, when you're looking at the expense and, you know, income lines, where's the pain points right now? And, you know, where, where's the, the growth opportunities? Well, the pain point that is ever present is the impact of the regulatory environment and rent control on the industry. And um, as you know, in Ontario and British Columbia, we are subject to, to rent control for product that was existed prior to November of 2018. So the very tight regulations that govern the relationship. When did those get implemented, Dean? They've been around for a while or is that newer? So I'm just trying to clarify because I, I know there's been some whispers about vacancy control and all sorts of other things coming through the legislation in BC or on a municipal level, but this is an older regulation. Uh, it is. I mean, rent control has existed for many, many years, certainly back at least to the 1990s, as far as I know, in Ontario and British Columbia. And it really governs what we're able to do on a resident renewal increase. So we're given a guideline increase that we have to abide by. Typically, it's been linked to the CPI, but not so much. And uh, there are also a host of regulations that just really govern the relationship between the landlord and our resident as well. But what did get enacted most recently in an effort to hopefully spur more supply is an exemption for rent control for new communities that are brought to market after November 2018. So as you know, there's a huge supply wave for the foreseeable future, both condominium and purpose-built rental. And any of those that come to market after, or that came to market after November 2018 are exempt from rent control. On the subject of vacancy control, that presently does not exist when a suite vacates in our portfolio or in anybody's portfolio in Vancouver or Ontario, they're able to adjust the rent market to market as they see fit. But I, there are whispers from counselors and the like that potentially that's a solution to battle in affordability. There are whispers. I know that our industry will be active in lobbying against that. It's not something that we believe will be an effective strategy. And, uh, the end of the day, you know, we believe that there's got to be some free market force involved in the process. And so hopefully talk of vacancy control will not gain traction. So if I, if I bring you two assets, you're potentially going to, you know, purchase ones, you know, in Alberta, ones in Ontario, and all other things being equal, of course, you prefer not to have any sort of you know, rent control in place. How much of a difference in your decision-making does that make? Or, or, or even better example would be the, you know, the 2018 exemption. So like same markets, just one building completed just prior to November 2018, one completed just after. How much of a decision factor is that? It's a decision factor, all things being considered. We'd love to have product that's newer generation that's not subject to rent control. So you know, that would be our preference. You know, as I've learned in my time in Canada, the... GTA market is really a low transaction market relative to what I'm used to in the U.S. And um, so you sort of have to take what you can get in some regards if you're looking to grow the portfolio through acquisition. But all things considered, we prefer a product that's not subject to rent control. We're going to go on a tangent a little bit here. Why do you think that the GTA isn't as um, transaction oriented in comparison to what you see in the U.S.? Like, What is the, is it just the 
ownership profile, more families, more longer holds. So 1031 once, exchanges, I think, is a big factor in the U.S. Yeah, yeah 1031 yeah. exchange is a big factor. But What's that? I, Just sort of clarify for those that don't understand uh, that. 1031 exchange, and listen, taxation is not my core expertise, but 1031 exchange allows you to avoid taxation on the gains of a sale of a, of a real estate asset so long as you acquire another real estate asset within a specific period of time. I forget what that period of time is. It might be six months. It allows you to avoid, um, largely avoid capital gains on the sale of the old asset. Which allows capital to be more efficient. You can seek the assets where it wants to be rather than stuck due to tax implications and you know, an asset that otherwise might not be perfect uh, you know, for that owner. Uh, exactly. So then aside from that, I mean, would you suggest that's, that's probably the main driver then that there's, that would be Canada-wide then, not just necessarily the GTA specific, just the lack of transactions, I mean. Yeah, you hit on a lot of the high points, I think, uh, on my view of why it's a low transaction environment. It's the nature of who owns the real estate. Right. A lot of it yeah. is still continuing, even though there's tremendous institutional presence in the space. I think it's still dominated largely by family businesses and so forth who are long-term holders of the real estate. And frankly, cap rates have been extraordinarily low. And um, when you're coupling an extraordinarily low cap rate with an asset that's subject to rent control, and thus your income is capped, makes it really challenging to have some of these deals pencil out. I was waiting for you to say, well, Americans are just more free-flowing and free-reeling <laughs> and happy to just pull the trigger. Well, uh, I, I know that uh, <laughs> whenever I speak with American clients, they do comment that Canadian lenders are a little more uh, conservative. On the lender side, yeah. for sure. What yeah. you, 80% loan to value. What the heck are they doing down there? <laughs> yeah. yeah, there's definitely more optionality on the, on the capital market front in the U.S., or at least there has historically. I think um, there's tremendous institutional presence, both institutional and private equity presence in the multifamily markets in the U.S. Many of those groups are not long-term holders. Their intent is to acquire an asset enact whatever improvements they can, and then exit it at a favorable return. And in the U.S., given the fact that resident turnover is far greater than we experience here in Canada. I mean, if I was writing an operating budget for a U.S. community, I would be budgeting a resident turnover somewhere around 50%, maybe even just north of that. So, What, per annum? Uh, per annum, yes. <laughs> Not per decade? Like in <laughs> per annum, Canada, exactly yeah. right, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so that means that if you're able to install an improvement at a community, a new program, whether it's utility billback or renovation or what have you, you can monetize that very, very quickly, ingrain it into your rent roll, and then dispose of the asset and do pretty well on it. So in Canada, where I'm, in fact, I'm right in the throes of our 2023 operating budgets, you know, we're looking at an annualized turnover for our portfolio that's around 20%. Which may be aggressive. It may be aggressive, especially since when I look at what's happened in 2022, our turnover is down probably 7 to 8% over what it was in 2021. So I think there's a feeling and that people are staying put and in a rising cost environment, especially in the rent control environment, our residents are not able to replace where they're living at a rental rate near what they're paying. So I think all that caters to much lower turnover. I got a friend of mine doesn't really like his place that he's living at as a renter. But he's paying to twenty one hundred bucks for eight hundred square feet. I would do the math. That's you know south of three bucks. And if to move to a nice place, it's four bucks per square foot. So he's going to have to come up with an extra thousand dollars a month, basically. And he just doesn't want to. So like that's you know he's a fairly transient. He doesn't have families. He's got really nothing tying him down other than he's been living there for four or five years. And to move would be a significant increase in his monthly expenses. So. Yeah, and it 
Agreed. And it cuts both ways. When we, I talked, mentioned earlier about communities that came to market after November 2018 that are exempt from rent control. I was speaking with one of my colleagues who lives in one of those buildings, and he's coming up for renewal very soon. He's watched what's happened with the rental rates, the asking rental rates at his building since he's moved in. And he's terrified about what his landlord is going to do on his lease renewal. And it made me think about, you know, and we're going to talk about a little bit of a panel I'm doing at this conference is, is there potentially a competitive advantage to be had for having a rent controlled community where you're able to actually advertise that we're rent controlled? Because I think given the sensitivity to affordability and residents wanting to know, wanting to have greater surety about what's going to happen with their rent, I think it may cater to an older vintage rent control community, but we'll see. Yeah. Interesting concept. You know, if you advertise a unit as, as rent controlled. Who'd uh, thunk it? Yeah. Um, but I mean, it makes perfect sense. Come in, pay this rent, but this will be your rent plus a couple percentage points every year. Exactly. Right? Exactly. I think it's a matter of time before somebody's got an so You almost get a premium? Like, yeah, it's high, <laughs> yeah. but... But you, it's rent, exactly but it's, right. But you yeah. never, you'll never, you'll never drop a $600 a year or a month rent increase on you, right? It, exactly. And I do wonder a little bit, and again, we'll speak about it in our panel later today, is how much awareness is there amongst a typical apartment prospect about the fact that, yes, this shiny brand new product is beautiful, but beware that, you know, it's not subject to rent control. And so you're not going to have surety. And so I just wonder how much consumer awareness there is around that. I bet you very little. Like you think about, you know, a newer build, I mean, both in Toronto and Vancouver in particular, you've got some 2016, 17, 18, 19 neighborhoods where buildings were popping up adjacent to one another around that time. You know, one, one, a next door building would be subject to rent control, but the other would not. But a, a renter wouldn't, wouldn't necessarily appreciate the distinction. No, agreed. And I think um, if you translate that also over to the shadow market, the condominium space, and I mean, there are probably twenty to 25,000 new condominiums slated for delivery every year in GTA as an example for as far out as you can see. And, you know, depending on whose number you believe, 50 to 60% of those, or maybe more, are actually going to be rented out. So an investor will acquire it and rent it out. And those prospects are probably even less aware of the impact of moving into a suite that is not rent controlled. And when you couple that with a non-institutional owner, i.e. an individual investor, who may wish to be very, very aggressive, it's a risky proposition for a resident. Well, so what's the premium? Like you got two sister buildings, one is past the threshold, so not controlled. One is controlled. What does a renter pay extra to access or benefit from rent control? It's an excellent question. I, <laughs> yeah. really, I don't know. I don't know yeah. too, but it's, it, it, you, it's, want to, you want to know. Like, absolutely. Your job is to figure that out, I yeah, guess. Yeah, right? for yeah. sure. And I think it is, it's a fair question and it's a fair way to look at it. And frankly, I think that, uh, you know, whereas people don't walk around bragging about being in rent control, <laughs> I think that that day may change. Um, I just always think of uh, Dragon's Den. Whenever there's a high education component, consumer education component, they're always out. So maybe this, maybe this, tra- this idea wouldn't get big traction on, uh, on Dragon's Den. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> Agreed. So but it might become more relevant because, you know, the, the CPI, you know, index growth and rents wasn't that far off of, you know, market growth and rents for the last couple of years. But now we're going to see a big gap between the two. You know, we're going to see, you know, very significant rent jumps versus rent controlled, whereas, of course, it's going to be capped. And, of course, there's so many new bills coming on stream that maybe that does wedge its way into the psyche of uh, your average, average renter. Uh, it could, very, very much so. And I think it, it will wedge its way into the psyche. And, of course, there's always the risk that 
another administration, political administration, rolls back the post-November 2018 exemption. I hope it doesn't happen, but of course, that's always a risk. Yeah, you kind of just plug your nose and hope it doesn't come, right? For a lot of these things, including vacancy control, but let's not, let's not <laughs> even, uh, even theorize that's coming. Yes. I'm, we're kind of going a little bit backwards here, but I, just for context, maybe just explain the Quadra portfolio that you have and, and, the, and the geographies you're in, and then let me, maybe we'll just bounce around a little bit and talk about the different theories inside those geographies. Yeah, happy to do that. So the quadrille domestic multifamily portfolio, our Canadian portfolio, is a little over 10,000 suites, and uh, we've got about 6,000 suites in the greater Toronto area another 2,000 or so suites in the greater Vancouver area and about 3,000 in, in Calgary. And then we've got a pretty sizable development portfolio, development pipeline, several thousand suites out as far as you can, you can see. We had a delivery this year in Burnaby, British Columbia, and we have at least one to two deliveries a year starting next year out as far as you can see. So, yeah, we've got a lot going on. And then we have a very sizable U.S. multifamily portfolio, a growing portfolio, and most of that is development or acquired assets that we do with really well-established, well-known joint venture partners in the U.S. And then we're also doing some multifamily development in Europe, and uh, we've got a sizable student housing holding in the U.S., and uh, we're doing some work in the manufactured housing space in North America. So, you know, Multifamily is a very, very high. A little bit of everything. Residential real estate is a very high conviction. Smorgasbord of residential uh, dwellings. Uh, Very much so. And it speaks to sort of our conviction around multifamily and and our uh, belief that, you know, all the dynamics, whether it's affordability, whether it's uh, difficulty achieving home ownership, household formation, all of those things really feed into um, why we believe so strongly in the space. So between... uh Europe, U.S., and Canada, where are you going to focus most of your growth efforts over the next couple of years? I would say it's uh, most of our growth efforts will be focused in North America. I mean, their markets we know really well. Uh, we've got great uh, multifamily talent on both north and south of the, of the border. We're going to continue to do work in Europe, to be sure. But uh, I would say that our big focus is in North America. So you, I mean, you come from the U.S., and that, that's where you kind of cut your teeth, so to speak, and we have this conversation sort of frequently about just the distinctions between the Canadian renter, the American renter. You already talked about just the transient nature and the turnovers. And I'm assuming part of that is just because, you know, in Toronto, there might be, or sorry, in Toronto, in Canada, is there other cities in Canada than Toronto? <laughs> in Canada, there are probably, what, six, maybe seven major cities if you count Halifax, right? In the US, there's, I don't know, you tell me, 30, 40 that would be considered... Uh, at least. Right, at, yeah. At least. So it's a very it's, vibrant national um, and And with that comes just a distinction then of the types of amenities. And so I know you, you talked about a large development pipeline. I'm really curious what the new generation of your of your portfolio looks like, you know, in contrast to what the existing, like what a larger suite sizes, different amenity packages, like what is it that you're kind of saying the next generation of renters needs this? And maybe if you could try to Canadian-U.S. contrast, because I'm assuming you look at them very differently based on the renter market. Uh, we look at them differently, but we also, more often than not, look to what's happening in the U.S. as sort of a bellwether for what we can expect to happen in the Canadian market. And I personally, and, and I think my company, views the U.S. institutional operation of multifamily as sort of being the North Star for high-quality management. And so the trends that we see 
in the U.S. from a design perspective, from an amenity perspective, from consumer preference perspective, tend to eventually get here in Canada. It just takes a little bit longer. And likewise, a lot of the operating methods, whether it's revenue management or the use of technology, mostly starts in the U.S. and then gets gets imported into Canada through certain operators. But in our case, like looking at amenities, it's, it's a great question because suite sizes have gotten smaller. There's no doubt about that. And we're combining that with a renter by choice mentality. So these are residents who say, I could afford to own a home. I have the equity to buy a home, but I'm making a decision to rent instead. And with that decision, I'm not expecting to have to compromise on the quality of finishes in my suite or the overall living environment or the amenities. And so to offset what's been a shrinking, generally a shrinking unit size, developers have found ways to create amenity environments that allow the amenities to become an extension of the actual living environment. So I may have a small suite, but I've got a huge club room. I've got a huge co-working space, or I've got an individual working space in the building. I've got places where I can be social, where I can work out. Uh, There are co-branding opportunities with major, whether they're fitness operators, coffee shops, things like that that are permeating the space. And so it's really about how can you create extensions of a smaller living environment with a much larger amenity space. Do they, do they, sorry, Adam, do they get used? I mean, we've heard, we've heard, we've, I mean, obviously Adam and I are apartment guys and we've had so many apartment owners on this podcast. And I've heard, I've heard this exactly what you said, that that, that is a, a strong demand. I've also heard other apartment operators, developers say, it's just a waste of space. No one uses them. You use them as a marketing tool, but then they sit there empty and I'd rather just have a unit generating revenue than a nice indoor terrarium with the petting zoo yeah, or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> do I think they're underutilized in generally? Yes, I do. That's been my experience. They are very much a marketing tool, but I think they're important, especially in a day and age where we're competing. I mean, the average vintage of apartment in Toronto, for example, I think it's probably a 1980s type product. When those were designed, there was no amenity space. It was not even office space for the community team. So that was all about packing as many suites as you could into into the, uh, the structure. But I think the, amenity, the amenities aren't unused. I think co-working space in particular is very well used. I think as we've got this uh, hybrid work from home situation. Yeah, get out of the, yeah. get out of the apartment Absolutely. where your kid's playing video games. So yeah. at least you got some privacy, yeah. right? Yeah, that but, makes yeah. sense. We're also finding that pet amenities are being very well, very well used. I mean, we've completely relaxed pet restrictions at almost all of our communities. We recognize that it's a part of people's lives and part of their quality of life. So we've tried to create amenities that cater to that. And um, so, yes, I think a lot of them are underutilized, but not entirely. Does that fall then? Sorry, I'm going to finish this up. Then you can go, Adam. Does that fall then on the operator to develop? I mean, the, the buzz term is programmatic living. It's to really, you built the amenities, you build to own. So you have an invested interest in making sure the amenities are the right amenities because you're going to own it. So you want them to be utilized to build the programs in the space, you know, on a weekly, monthly, daily basis to get the tenants out of their units and into the amenities that you've built? As, I mean, and that maybe that's just more of a theoretical question. When you're sitting down with a blank slate of paper to figure out what to build on that, that site, does that come into your, your planning? Like, how are we going to get our tenants to use these amenities? Uh, very much Or so. just get them to pay for it. Well, and, and, and I think that <laughs> I mean, we the, said, the, the, the marketing is part of it. Like, hey, it's, it's, got a, it's got a rooftop you know, area to like barbecue area, you may never use it, but it's an extra hundred bucks a month in rent or whatever it may be, right? Yeah, very much so. Uh, it's not about designing amenities. And a lot of developers do this that are just sort of showpieces that people tour through and 
never use. The real challenge comes in from an operator perspective is how do you activate that space? How do you create energy around it? And how do you make it a place that people want to go to so it doesn't remain underutilized? A lot of that is centered around resident activities, creating you know events or what have you that make people want to come together and use those spaces. So it's not just about building a static space and hoping that it works out, but it's also about being nimble with the spaces you design. Consumer preferences change. Things that are in vogue today, five years from now, people are not as interested in. And I think it's incumbent upon developers and operators to be really nimble and agile around those spaces, continue to reimagine them and think about ways that a space that was popular and is no longer popular could be made popular again through some other use. So creating that sort of optionality, I think, is really important. I got one, one just kind of follow up on the amenity, amenity conversation, then we can uh, move on. Uh, you did mention, you know, pet amenities, and it seems like it was only four or five years ago, that, you know, cutting edge amenities here were considered, you know, a dog washing station and uh, cold storage for grocery delivery, you know, things like that, where my understanding is that the States was into that uh, well ahead of it showing up here in Canada. So when you look at, you know, your U.S. portfolio, what is the next level of amenity, the, the most out there amenity, whether or not it makes it to Canada or not, but what do you see down there that kind of makes you uh, raise your eyebrows? Adam likes the, uh, always uses the, the, lazy uh, river. the lazy river. I remember, <laughs> I remember hearing about a U.S. college had a student residence that had a lazy river with a giant movie screen set up beside it so that the students could laze about the river on a Saturday night while watching a movie. And that just blew my mind. I was like, that's, that's, Something like akin to that has got to start showing up in the, uh, you know, the low-grade amenity war we've got brewing here in Canada. Yeah, I actually, it's funny you'd mention the Lazy River because I'm familiar with it. I worked in the student space for a period of time, and a lot of operators at that time looked at the student space and said, you know, what, are the, what is popular with the students that we could then import into conventional multifamily? So I've seen the Lazy River. I manage a community, actually, that had a had a lazy river. There's some crazy amenities in the student space, whether it's the outdoor theater you talked about, whether it's indoor slides that can get you from one floor of the building to another. <laughs> not it's, just it's, Google, eh? Not just Google. No, not just Google. And um, in the U.S., in the U.S. development side, there continues to be what's often described as an amenity arms race with each developer trying to outdo the next competitor. Well, if if half of your tenants are leaving every year, that makes perfect sense to me because you're constantly trying to attract 50% of your building, right? Like every year. I just don't you're, see that. It doesn't make sense. Mode. Yeah, you're always in sales mode. Exactly. Uh, you are always in sales mode. And I will say that's one. And when we talk about some of the differences between operating the US and Canada in Canadian context, and this is getting a little away from the amenity description, but in the Canadian context where you've got very low turnover, the impact that it's had on Canadian operations are we need to really brush up on the need to be able to sell and market. And in the U.S. context, you're always doing that. There's tremendous focus on retention because I don't want 53 or 55% turnover. I can save a lot of money at 50% or 45%. So knowing that half of your residents are going to have an important renewal election every 12 months and half of them are likely to decide to go to a shiny or newer competitor, retention is a major, major focus. They are way more so than my experience has been in Canada, where, in fact, we'd love to have more turnover. Well, on that topic, I think we're, we're almost out of uh, time here. But on the topic of turnover, because you're in a lot of Canadian markets, so you would have visibility on kind of top of market rents, especially with some newer product. 
we're hearing straight across the board. You know, every every big city in Canada is just saying that you know rental growth has hockey sticked in the last you know six months. What markets are you seeing in particular with outsized rental growth? Well, you can't ignore the Greater Vancouver area where we have very very low availability. And when I look at our lease trade out, i.e., what is the new resident paying compared to what the old resident is paying, and whether it's unrenovated or renovated product, we're seeing rent growth in the mid twenty percent. It's been staggering, and it's been. So where's where's that, Dean? What geography? Vancouver. In Vancouver, yeah. Okay. And frankly, we're not that far off of it in the Greater Toronto area, specifically in the urban core, Toronto that struggled a bit during the pandemic, but it's come roaring back. And so, uh, yeah, we're seeing also lease tradeouts uh, north of twenty percent in Toronto as well. That's staggering, and unfortunately, that is a little bit of fuel for the fire for vacancy uh, control. But uh, we, we, we promise we wouldn't talk about that anymore. Yeah, we're not doing that. Yeah. And I mean that that leasing uh, spread that we've heard that consistently. More or less across the country, you know, uh, we've heard that also in, in the some Alberta markets, depending on the asset, Toronto is having that same experience. Unfortunately, our friends in Montreal are not, at least my last check, we had a we had an update internally at First National and the Montreal market seems to be lagging a little bit, but I don't, I don't know if you guys participate very much there. Not bad, but just it's not having the same, like you said, 20% increase, uh, same lease increase. We're almost done, Dean, but I think one last line of questioning for me, and it's sort of the inverse of rental growth, and that's the expense side of the equation, which is also experiencing some pretty significant growth. One of the the main panels here at the CAIC uh, just earlier was quoting some of the expense line item increases in the last two years. And of course, gas is way up. I think insurance has doubled. You know, Taxes continue to, to creep up as they always have. You know, even water bills have gone up. I mean, it seems to be no matter what line item you're looking at, even in capital expenditures, you know, the cost of just raw material to go into your capex or your R and M, I guess, those have gone up. So, what are you seeing across your portfolio, I and mean, what are you doing to kind of keep those as, you know, controlled as possible? Well, it's a timely question because we are in the middle of our budget process, so we're putting a laser focus on operating expenses. And the highlights you hit: natural gas for us have been a Negative surprise for us this year. In fact, our our utility costs have been off the charts, specifically in natural gas, but less so, but still increasing in both water and hydro. Our insurance costs, have, I can't remember the last year we had sort of flat insurance cost growth. This year for us, it's a single digit growth on the residential side, but in the years prior to that, it was double digit teens insurance growth. Big increases in property taxes, especially in Alberta. So all of these are sort of in an uncontrollable bucket for us. It makes it really challenging and puts a lot of pressure on our controllable expense lines as a way to sort of offset things. So we're aggressively managing expenses, whether it's through rebidding our major service contracts and then trying to lock in pricing for a couple of years while we let the economy and inflation settle out a little bit. I mean, we're micromanaging all of our expenses. We're looking at some new operating methodologies, centralization of certain functions as a way to potentially stem some of the overhead cost increases. And um, yeah, we're just being very aggressive about it and we hope things settle out. But we're also aggressively managing the top line as an offset. In the case of Quadrille Residential, we use a automated revenue management tool to reprice our suite. So we literally reprice our asking rents every single day across our portfolio. It's allowed us to be really nimble and really reactive to gains that we've seen in the market. So we're trying to work it on a number of different angles to to help offset the expense uh, side of things. 
I mean, I find that really fascinating that you're you're literally daily changing the or potentially changing the the asking rents. One last question then, and I think we're going to wrap, Dean. Just the um, the pressure to keep that NOI growth. I mean, I, like you just rent. Well, we've talked about the uncontrollable expenses. So you're, you're focused on what you can control, which makes perfect sense. And of course, the top line is the one that you really have the most control over. What do you do for sort of, I don't know how to phrase it, sort of ancillary revenue, whether it be, you know, whether it's hydro towers or car rentals or like, is there anything that you've really focused on as a, as a tool to sort of, it's a, a rental adjacent revenue? Yeah, it's, it's a big area of focus. Uh, I will say opportunities for ancillary Revenue gains in the U.S. are much more available given the lack of rent control. Selling popcorn at the uh, the theater. Exactly. Uh, yeah. <laughs> exactly. But we're aggressively managing our telecommunications agreements where we have the major telecoms present in our buildings with uh, fiber optic or whatever it may be. We're aggressively managing any revenue share opportunity, whether it's antenna revenue, any of our mixed-use projects. We're working on as many angles as we can. Those aren't subject to rent control, so... We worked them very hard. Yeah, that makes sense. We have run out of time, Dean. Really appreciate the conversation. Thanks for thanks for sharing. Always find it interesting to have the compare and contrast between the American markets because you know, of course, being a little bubble of Canada that we are, you, you often lose that perspective. So it's really nice to have that. And and of course, with your exposure in Quadril, obviously you're looking at it from a macro perspective. So thanks very much for sharing your insights. Thanks to First National for powering the podcast. I got more. Thanks to Informa for hosting us here at the CAIC and part of the speaker video series if you're watching online. I think that's it. Thank the guests. Oh, yeah. And thanks, Dean, for coming on. Thanks for having me. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast After Show, recording live here at the uh, Canadian Department Investment Conference. Just had a conversation with a gentleman by the name of Dean Holmes, Senior Vice President at Quadril. Now, that's the third. We talked about it, right? We had Remco, who's the president. Then we had Anthony, who's his boss. And now Dean. And what was cool about that conversation with Dean is just the comparison to the, to the U.S. And you know, he it was kind of almost matter of fact. He's like, yeah, no, everything that they do down there comes up here. Now, I don't think lazy rivers are coming up here. We've talked about this a lot. Like they turn into ice, or I guess they turn into skating. I'm rings. clearly fascinated skating, by that skating. They turn into you know <laughs> skating trails in the winter time. But he, he he was kind of I don't know. Just did did it wasn't like I think maybe because we're Canadians, we're enamored by the fact that sort of stuff's going on down there. And he's like, no, no, no it, it it makes its way here. Yeah, there's just a lag, you know. It's yeah. and that's been kind of kind of universal. The amenities conversation was interesting. Uh, lazy rivers aside, <laughs> although I do bring that up every chance I get. You do, yeah. That's your like me with the uh, thirty-story industrial building, yeah, industrial high rise. Yeah, yeah it's, I, I I got to see some Canadian real estate with lazy rivers, or I I won't be able to retire. Uh, you know, <laughs> satisfied. I I see that in your future, you're going to be on some board trying to convince them to build a lazy river like this. Passionately. <laughs> <laughs> We entertain ourselves way too much on this stuff. Okay. Yeah. Rent growth. That was the other one. 20%. He's talking about Vancouver, Toronto, I think for the two months. Yeah, but we heard that though. When we had James Ha on at Boardwalk, I wasn't even I think he mentioned 17% leasing spreads. Yes. Yeah. I think we talked about some month over month numbers that were really impressive. And yeah, then annual were yeah, enormous. Right. So 20% yes. leasing spreads. I think like that's a that's a COVID anomaly, I think though. I think there's like some stagnation during COVID. People weren't moving around, people weren't leaving, and then all of a sudden it was like, all right, we're moving. Combined with the fact that there's, you know, some upward pressure on rents, downward pressure on supplies, you know, demographic changes, all that kind of stuff, right? So I think it's almost like you're experiencing two years of rental growth in one year just because you didn't have any rental growth or you had just sort of everybody's in isolation for a year. 
Well, I mean, I guess the one other thing to keep in mind in that though is I think James Hove Boardwalk was talking about uh, yeah, Alberta, right. right? Where rents were pretty affordable. And he, he might have been including incentives or not. I can't remember, right? Yeah. So, But Dean's talking about Toronto, Vancouver, the two most expensive cities in this country, seeing 20% uh, jump. That just uh, it compounds the affordability issue. You know, good from a valuation perspective, obviously. Yeah. But you're talking about the price used rents. And, you know, and anecdotally talking to, you know, borrowers now, like I'm hearing in Toronto, rents north of $5 on, you know, new, well-amenitized buildings. You know, one of the things that, and I didn't obviously pull, point this out while we were talking to him, but I mean, he kept mentioning rent controls. And, and we had that interesting sort of, um, for me anyway, personal epiphany of, well, yeah, I guess being rent controlled might be an attribute, which I thought was a really kind of, yeah, that was an interesting concept. Yeah, really interesting concept. Yeah. But you know, then we talked about sort of apartment adjacent revenue and how they're really focused on that because you will never get any kind of cap control on what you can do with that revenue. And so if you have more control, meaning you can be more aggressive on its growth, and it's just one more way to grow your NOI. Yeah, no, the like I guess in Ontario specifically, because we got the 2018 cutoff for rent controlled or not for new builds, there is a window now where you can get into a pretty new building. You know, if you can find a building that completed in the the first half of 2018, that will be rent controlled and you're going to get, you know, condo quality, new 10 years from now, it matters less because the building will be you know, aged. Uh, yeah. yeah. But uh, interesting moments in the market for that. Yeah. But as we did cover though, you would have to explain to renters why that's a value and you'd have to explain I, it over and over and over. I wonder if you're going to start driving around and you're going to see signs saying for lease, rent controlled building. Like I, you know, I don't know if it'll get that extreme, but if the tenants, I mean, it's, it's driven by the media, right? If all of a sudden, the Globe and Mail starts to decide to, you know, let's make this an article and it becomes news. Then all of a sudden the community, the society becomes educated on it. And then it becomes a thing that we have to pay attention to. Right. So, well, there was, I mean, uh, you know, part of the reason anyway, that we now have a 2018 cutoff versus uh, the previous cutoff, that I think it was 1992 or three. 91. Um, 91. Yeah. 91. It was a Toronto star article where a Toronto star reporter was living in a condo owned by, uh, I believe, I, I hope I don't butcher this story, but, but I'll put it out there publicly. A, a condo with, you know, a, a call it a uh, unsophisticated landlord or just a landlord that just owns a one-off condo and they double rent on them. And likely that's not because they thought that's what the market would bear. They probably wanted to get the tenant out for whatever reason. Yeah. That's one way to do it. I mean, that's speculation on my part, of course. Then there's a bit of a, a media frenzy for a short period of time. And then all of a sudden, no more rent exemption, rent control exemptions anymore. Yeah. Then, uh, one bad actor, a single yeah. unit owner, and all of a sudden the owners of the 100,000 apartment owners, apartments across the country, we're all bad, right? Yeah. And here's a, there's a call to action for all the community members, the commercial real estate community members that are listening. Let's please stop using the word landlord. Just stop it. <laughs> yeah, Lord talk, of t- the land. <laughs> We've said this before, but they're not landlords. Yeah, yeah, they're not. They're, well, what is the, they're, uh, the I don't know what they're, they're owners, the property managers, there's uh, housing partners. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, friends. Yeah, uh, housing friends. There you go. <laughs> yeah, that definitely softens it. <laughs> um, last but not least, the conversation with Dean uh, that I thought was interesting was just the, the fact that they've you know effectively removed all of their pet restrictions. And just acknowledge that, yeah. like, why? Why would you? Why would you limit? Why would you, if you, yeah. you know, you've you got a pool of tenants, you know, why would you say, well, you, you're a great tenant, but you can't have your six pound poodle, right? Like, it, 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 it does make sense to me that that's. Well, like, I remember in the early 20s, I got a dog. And so, of course, it did not make me a great renter because, you know, I've got no credit history. I'm 21 years old and I've got a, not a little poodle, a, you know, a boxer, which is a fair sized dog. And it made renting apartments a bit of a pain. You know, and at that age, you tend to hop around a fair bit. And so, every couple of years, all of a sudden, I'm trying to, you know, lease up space with his dog and it, you know, it, it caused problems for sure. So to hear landlords embrace it 
is fantastic. And I wonder if they legislatively, I think they have to, but... Uh, yeah, I heard that, that. It's actually illegal to say yeah. you can't move in here with a, with a pet. There's a there's an anecdote for you. But I mean, I guess there are, and I'm a dog lover, animal lover, and you are too, but I guess there are people that aren't. And yeah. maybe, you know, they, they should go to a non-pet building, right? Put them all together then. If you don't like pets, go find a building that doesn't allow pets and <laughs> be happy there. All right. I think that uh, wraps up our, our after show for this one. We've got a busy day here at the apartment conference. Uh, a lot of good guests coming up. So we're going to uh, get ready for the next one. All right, everybody. See you then. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.